Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, or hope at least. It wasn't horrible. And if it was horrible, I'm very sorry. And I'm glad that you're here. You can worship the Lord. Uh, I ate too much pie. It's amazing how much pie I can eat in a single day. It's kind of remarkable. Um, try to mix them. I, can, I uh, convinced myself that pumpkin pie is like, it's like a fruit. And so uh, it counts, and it's somewhat healthy, I guess. Uh, maybe there are vitamins in there. I don't know. But we're glad you're here today. And as Treb noted, we are in this in-between week. We're going to start Advent next week, and then we'll roll on into Christmas. A joyous, our favorite time of the year. I love it. We just look forward to the G- Jesus' return and look back at his coming and it's a, it's a fantastic time. So, but in between, you, uh, we usually get what we often call them one-offs, and often you'll get kind of our, our quiet time or whatever we're going through in the Bible. And for me, that's usually a psalm. And so today we're going to be looking at Psalm 81. And before we read into it, uh, I want to give a little background on it. There's a guy there named Asaph, and he wrote 11 psalms, Psalm 50. And then your, the book of Psalms is broken down into books. And at the beginning of book 3 is Psalm 73, and he wrote Psalm 73 through 83. And we don't know a whole lot about Asaph except for he was a Levite who was a worship leader during the time of David. David trusted him. If you go back and look at, I think it's Numbers 16, maybe? Maybe Numbers 17. I can't remember where it is exactly. Uh, When David brings back the ark into Jerusalem after the Philistines had taken it away, uh, Asaph was... uh, selected to be the leader of the people who were leading that time in worship. It says he played the cymbals. So I don't know what the cymbals looked like back then, but maybe he was the kid in the band. Trevor and I were joking about this earlier. He was the guy who maybe couldn't play anything else, so he got to play the cymbals. But it says he played the cymbals. He apparently started a, uh, a, like a, a worship Levite leader school, and uh, his descendants were, of course, taken off into captivity and are numbered in the, uh, the folks that came back. And so Asaph, by all all accounts, was a very faithful Levite, a servant of the Lord, a, a worship leader, and a writer of psalms. And so he wrote some really, really hard and deep and difficult psalms. Psalm 73, of course, looks at uh, why is it that um, God has allowed the uh, arrogant and the wicked to prosper. And so a lot of the psalms are very deep and very theologically weighty. And Psalm 81 is a psalm that Asaph wrote Uh, Most folks think that he wrote it for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, or uh, it's called uh, uh, Sukkot today. And if you're unfamiliar with the calendar, that's kind of at the end of harvest. They would come and they would, uh, usually it depends on the the moon phases, but it's usually in the middle of or end of October. And uh, the Israelites would come and they would make a little booths or tabernacles or tents, and they would live in these tents for a week. And I got this little uh, picture from... Uh, this book called the Book of Psalms, giving some background for it. And it says, The Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated for seven days. It was a huge feast. And the people made little booths, and they lived in them. The focus of the celebration was to remind Israel of their redemption from Egypt and of God's protection and sustenance in the wilderness when they did not live in home. So they had God protected us when we lived in the wilderness. We lived in tents, so we built little tents, little tabernacles, and we lived in them for a week. I'm sure the kids just loved it. But it was also a time for giving thanks for the harvest, which had just ended. Following upon the Day of Atonement as it did, the feast was a time of celebrating the joy of forgiveness and reconciliation with God and His bountiful provisions for His people. 
So imagine all these folks are living there, little tents they built out of sticks and branches and things, and they're living there, and they're celebrating, and they're enjoying all these feasts, reminding themselves how God provided for them in the past and how he's continued to provide today. It was the most joyous of the Jewish feasts. And if you've ever been at a, at a Jewish party or a bar mitzvah, man, they can, they can throw a party. And so it was the most joyous. And the rabbis used to say that the one who had not witnessed the celebration of this feast did not know what joy was. So for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, Asaph writes this psalm to be read during that time. So before we read it, we're going to pray, but knowing that that is the context and the setting of this psalm. So before we do that, let's pray for a moment and ask the Lord to show us what he wants to teach us through this psalm. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do thank you as your people have for millennia to thank you for your great provision to come to you with thanksgiving. We have a day on our calendar where we're supposed to come together and give thanks to live a life of gratitude, to thank our God for how you have provided for us, sustained us. So we come to you post-Thanksgiving, in between this time and when we open up the celebration of the advent of our Lord and King. And we come to you to read this psalm, to ask you to teach us what you want us to know from it. Show us who you are. Reveal yourself to us. Reveal who we are and our deep need for you. Reveal your redemption to us. Lord, I know that we all bring lots of things this week. Some of us are exhausted. Some of us do not want to go back to work tomorrow. Some of us are glad to get back to work and away from crazy families. Some of us probably experienced family trauma this week. Um, Some of us are just in deep seasons of grief and trial and sorrow. Some of us are in light periods on top of the mountain. Wherever we are, Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us who you are. As you reveal yourself to us, would you pull scales off of our eyes, um, correct any erroneous thinking we have about you, and help us see you in your glorious and beautiful truth as you reveal yourself to us through this psalm. Transform our thinking, transform our affections for you. As we pray every week, I want you to just take a moment, and whatever it is you brought here this week, um, know that the Lord is aware of it and that he brings you here to worship him. So take a moment and pray for yourself. Ask for the Lord to teach you all that he wants to teach you this morning. Again, as we pray every week, pray for someone else around you, maybe someone you know, maybe someone you don't know. Just pray that the Lord would teach them, encourage them, challenge them, And that they would leave this place better knowing who the Lord is and how they can walk with him. Lord, we come to you this morning to joyfully submit our hearts and our minds to the authority of your word. And teach us, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, this is Psalm 81. He says, Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music, strike the tambourine, play the melodious harp and lyre, sound the ram's horn at the new moon, and when the the moon is full on the day of our feast, 
This is a decree for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it as a statute for Joseph when he went out against Egypt, where we heard a language we did not understand. He says, I have removed the burdens from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. In your distress, you called, and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, and I will warn you. If you would, but listen to me, O Israel. You shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not bow down to an alien God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up from out of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But... My people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would but listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before them and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. All right, so most psalms, they were, all these psalms were written as, as music. They're lyrics to a song. This one is the director of music according to Giddith, but we don't know what that music is. And so they've all got a structure. And this was kind of broken down into three sections, really in verses uh, 1 through 5. I'm calling it God's, uh, God's command to them, what they are supposed to do. And in 6 through 10, his, his character revealing who he is. And uh, verses 11 through 16 his correction of them, how they are supposed to live according to what he has taught them. So if you look at verse 1, he is commanding his people to sing. Sing how? For joy to who? God our strength. Like we come here every Sunday and we sing. Like no one should sing like the redeemed. Sing for joy to God our strength. To whom do we sing? God. He is our strength. He is the one who gives us all that we need. Then it says, shout aloud to the God of Jacob. So they're being commanded to shout, to shout to the God of Jacob. So I don't know who gave a little holler here earlier. That's good. Like, I would love a little more shouting here if you ever want to, by the way. Uh, I can get all riled up. But you shouting is commanded by God in the Bible to shout to the Lord, right? Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. I guess you could shout not aloud. I don't think that's shouting. Anyway, shouting into a cup, like, hello. But Shout aloud to who? The God of Jacob, the God of our strength and the God of Jacob, connecting the faith that their fathers had back to where they are today. But to sing for joy and to shout aloud. These are commands in the Bible. Like we are commanded to do these things, singing and shouting this great, overwhelming, jubilant response to the Lord. So by the way, if you ever get a, uh, get a wild hair and want to shout out something during a sermon, like please do. Give us an amen. We like it. It's okay. Amen. I like it. Good. Bring it. So, um, by the way, if you ever go to uh, other churches, of, uh, well, there's lots of different cultures of churches, just like there's cultures and families and peoples. And if you've ever been to a more lively church, they're a lot of fun. So, uh, bring a little liveliness here. But anyway, it says, begin the music, strike the tambourine, play with the melodious harp and the lyre, sound the ram's horn at the new moon when the, uh, when the moon is full on the day of our feast. Play all the music. Like, pull out all the stops. Let's have a party. This is a decree for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He is ordering them, commanding them to do these things. This is a world, by the way, the ancient world was brutal. It was hard. It was people starved and died of diseases. And I know that people still do that today. But we made a lot of progress kind of on the human race front. We're also still horrible. But it was a brutal, brutal time. 
And God is telling them, in the midst of all this broken world, I'm going to put you into a land that I've promised you, and I want you to be a people who every single year at this time, I want you to gather together for a full week, and I want you to have a giant party, a giant feast where you're going to remember who I am, and you're going to play the music, and you're going to play the instruments, and you're going to have this massive, huge party parade. I'm not sure exactly what they did, but it was loud, and it was fun, and it was joyous, and it was celebratory. What does that teach us about our God? It teaches that he is a celebratory God. He's not some big, stuffy, angry brute. He's a God who celebrates, and we are supposed to be like him. So he established it as the statute for Joseph when he went out against Egypt. So this idea of, of Joseph goes down into Egypt, and uh, the people of God end up, his siblings end up following him down there and become slaves to the Pharaoh. And then they call out to him, and he comes and rescues them. So when God went out, and then it says, when we heard a language we did not understand, that, that literally means we heard a, heard a lip we did not comprehend. And so most translators think that it means either that when Jacob was there, or excuse me, when uh, Joseph was there, he heard a language he didn't understand. Or as Asaph is writing the psalm, he hears a language he doesn't understand. And then in verse 6, we have God talking. And so if your translation is different there, it's because... It's kind of hard to translate sometimes. But the idea being he hears something, and then there's a message in verse 6, which is very, very clear. So we have God's command, which is shout to the Lord and sing to him. Have a giant, loud, musical party. Why? We're about to find out. He says, I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their, ba- their hands were set free from the basket. So if you remember back to your story in Exodus, the Israelites... They, were, they had to make bricks. And when they got in trouble, they were supposed to make bricks without straw. And so you, made, uh, you had bricks, and then you put straw with the brick and the clay, and then it made a hard brick, and then they could fire it, and then they could build things with it, right? And the Israelites had to make a certain a quota of bricks, and then they were told to make the bricks that were harder to make, and it was brutal. And they're making bricks and putting them in baskets. So imagine someone who's got a basket full of bricks, and they're carrying it along their back. And someone who has this terrible burden of being enslaved, God comes in and says, I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. So he sets them free from the burden of their slavery. Literally and like metaphorically, like he sets them free. In your distress, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a, out of a thundercloud, literally out of the secret place of thunder. Like ancient peoples, the giant storms come up and there's a thundercloud and they're like, where's the thunder coming from? And you know, this, this idea of there's a secret place that thunder is stored up from. And God answers this from the secret place of thunder, a place of power and of loudness and volume. And then he says, I tested you with the waters of Meribah. Uh, uh, Meribah means uh, grumbling or complaining. And that's, uh, if you remember twice when they're wandering in the desert, they come up to a place where there is no water. And they immediately just fall apart. The people are like, oh, you brought us out of slavery, and now you're going to kill us in the desert. And God's like, oh, my, come on, seriously. Just, Moses, walk up and smack the rock with your stick, okay? And mom and make water flow out of the rock, okay? It's nothing complicated. And then, of course, Moses goes up and smacks the rock twice the next time and gets in big trouble. But he tested them at the waters of Meribah. He brought them to a place where they would have to trust the Lord, do the impossible, and they failed. There's a lot about that written in the Bible. But what does God do here? Well, he, said, he removes burdens or relieves burdens. So he's the one who, he's a remover of burdens or reliever of burdens. Their uh, hands were set free. He sets them free. So he removes burdens and he sets us free. 
In your distress, you called, and what does he do? He rescues. He is the God who rescues us. And he answers them out of the thundercloud. So he answers them in power. He answers them in, in a miraculous, marvelous, loud way. And then he is a God who tests or proves. He brings them to a place where they're going to have to trust him. And he, honestly, for the Israelites, and what he does for us most of the time is brings us to a place where he's going to require us to trust him. And he reveals to us how much we still need him and how much work we still have left to do in our lives. So he is a God who removes, who, uh, move, removes burdens, sets us free, rescues, answers, and tests us. Now he says, hear, O my people, and I will warn you, if you would but listen to me, O Israel. So this is Asaph looking back, right, talking to the nation of Israel now, looking back and saying, okay, this is what he did. Now I'm warning you today, hear, O my people, this is God speaking through Asaph, hear, O my people, and I will warn you, if you would but listen to me, O Israel. You shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not bow down to an alien God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So interesting thing here is in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, that list starts out with verse 10. I am the Lord your God, your God who brought you up from out of Egypt. And then he says, you shall have no foreign God among you. You shall bow down, not bow down to an alien God. So that's the first commandment of the ten. But Asaph flips it here. And says, remember this commandment. If you would listen to me, I'm going to warn you, don't have any foreign gods among you. You're supposed to worship me and me alone. I alone am God. Worship only me. Why? Because we become like what we worship. That is how we were created. God created us to worship him. And as we worship him, he transforms us into who he is. His character gets, gets imparted to us as we worship him. If you worship idols that you make... You become like the idols. You become like what you worship. It's just, it's how we were made. We can rail against it. We can fight against it. We can disagree with it. But you'll be wrong because we become like what we worship. So he wants us to worship him. And then he reminds them, I am the Lord your God. I am Jehovah Elohim. And I am the one who brought you up from out of Egypt. I redeemed you. He's reminding them. Don't you remember? I removed the burden. I set you free. I answered you. And I brought you out and I tested you and I rescued you. You would expect him to hear go about and just list the other nine commandments, right? But he doesn't do that. Asaph has this twist right at the end here of verse 10. You expect him to say, okay, first commandment, you should have another foreign God among you. You should not bend down any alien God. I'm the only God. Boom, 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 boom. Here's the other commandments. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. What is he saying there? Well, we're about to get into, at the, at the end of the chapter, we'll have this picture of things, of this, uh, this honey from the rock. But you remember what God did when he brought them out into the desert. You bring them out into a place, there's nowhere to plant crops, there's nowhere to do all those things. There's no water and there's no food. So he provides them water from a rock in Meribah, tests them. And then what does he provide? Manna. Remember how the manna worked? They would go out in the morning and it would, the manna would have settled like dew on the ground. And in the morning they could collect the manna and it tasted like, I don't know, like some, some coriander or honey flakes or something. I don't know. Nobody knows what it was. The name for manna means what is it. And so they didn't know what it was either, but they could eat it. And so you could take it and eat it. And so they would, which is a great picture of like how God provides sometimes. You're like, what are you doing? What is this? So he provides this manna for them and they live on it for 40 
years. Now, remember, they weren't supposed to be there for 40 years. They were supposed to be there like two or three weeks, however long it takes to walk from Egypt into the promised land. But he brings them, and the Lord's like, Would you, will you trust me? And they're like, no. He's like, we're going to send some spies in to spy out the land. The spies come back. They don't, things don't go well for them. So that whole generation dies in the desert, except for two guys, except for Caleb and uh, Joshua. So there's this man that comes in the morning and it comes in the evening, and you would just get enough for that day. Get it in the morning, eat, get it in the evening and eat. If you tried to put a bunch in a, in a jar and store it, it would decay, it would rot, except for on the Sabbath. Then you could get a double portion of the manna and you would have plenty to eat through the Sabbath and it would start again on the next day. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. They were hungry in the desert and he fed them with exactly what they needed. Was it fancy? No. Did they get tired of it? Yes, you would too. So would I, but they didn't die. He gave them what they needed. Okay, so it's a picture of, uh, you have God's command, a picture of his character. He's the God who remo- uh, rescues and answers and, and uh, uh, provides. And then in verse 11, he says this, but my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So they wouldn't listen, and then they wouldn't submit. So what did he do? He gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. It sounds a lot like Romans chapter 1, where these people say, there is no God, there is no, and we're going to do whatever we want. And so God turns them over. He turns them over in their, to depraved minds. He turns them over to depraved hearts. He turns them over to depraved bodies. He turns them over to do whatever they want to do. And that, brothers and sisters, is the most terrifying thing I can imagine. I've gotten little glimpses of what my heart is like apart from the Lord, and it's awful. I would be a terrible person apart from Jesus. I have a friend who's a, a, a Jew, and I knew her in college, and she was like, you're a really nice guy. I'm like, no, I'm not. Jesus is really good. She's like, no, you would be nice anyway. I'm like, no. I know my own heart. I know it. I know the things that go through my mind. I know the things that I think one of the things I think about other people, how critical I can be, how there's a long list of things that are about Brandon that are awful, that Jesus transforms into things that are good. Giving us over to their stubborn hearts to follow in their own ways. God has told them, listen, follow my ways. I've got a path through the desert with you. And so he turned them over to follow their own ways. And where did he get them? Wandering the desert for 40 years, eating manna day after day, and then eventually just dying. And they laid there in the desert. That is where our stubborn hearts and our own devices get us. Far from God and broken. In the desert, hungry, thirsty, and miserable. Now you may be thinking, you know what? I've gone my own way and I've done pretty darn good. That's great. You may be one of the wicked people that Asaph is talking about in, in Psalm 73, so watch out. But sometimes things go well for you for a while. Okay, I'll take it. But only you know what you're like in your own heart. L- walking in your own stubborn devices leads you to a place of brokenness and of desert and of sadness, and there's no other way around it. And you can, what's the word I'm thinking of? You can justify almost anything if you, you can convince yourself of anything, right? If you have enough time, I can convince myself that what I'm doing is right. This is one of the reasons we come to the Word of God every time. is because the Word of God is a mirror that reflects back on us and shows us who we truly are. So, they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't submit, so God gives them 
over. And then he gives this, this hope to them, if my people would but listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways. He's like, ah, I bring you out. Here's the Ten Commandments. Listen to me, submit to me, and follow my ways. What would he do? I would subdue their enemies. They have all these enemies that are coming against them to destroy them. They're this nation of people. They don't have walls. They don't have any protection. They don't have any safety. I would subdue them. I would turn my hand against their foes. God himself would fight their battles. And those who hate the Lord would cringe before him, and their punishment would last forever. I would wipe them out. Your enemies, those who are attacking you, I would take care of them. But how would he treat them? I would destroy your enemies, but you would be fed with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. I would give you the sweetest of possible things. Remember, they didn't have refined sugar in the ancient world. Honey was the sweetest thing imaginable. Honey, honeycombs, honey cakes. You could get raisins and dates, and those things were sort of sweet, but nothing was as sweet as honey. He's saying, not only would I defend you from your enemies, not only would I provide for you, but I would give you the best, the finest of wheat, and the sweetest of honey. That's what I want for you, if you would listen and submit and walk in my ways. So this is what they would sing during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. They would come there and they would celebrate and they would sing this song to remember what had happened and to remind them to continue to walk in God's ways. All right, so what do we, what do, we do with this? Well, sometimes you just take words out of here and you think about applying it. So what does it look like for us to sing for joy and to shout, to be a people of joy? I want to look at us being a people of, of joy, of us being a people of surrender, and us being a people of bold expectation of what God can do. Being a people of joy, honestly, biblically, means at some point we're going to sing and we're going to shout. We come here every Sunday, I've already said this, that we sing, and we sing on purpose. God created us to sing now, not all of us can sing well or carry a tune, and that's okay. It's a wonderful verse that says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And you're like, I can't sing, but I can make a joyful noise. Like, woo, can't sing, play the cymbal, play the tambourine or whatever. But singing to the Lord is an incredible gift that humanity has been given. That we can sing, we have music, we can play music, we can write music, we can sing music, we can hum it, we can whistle. We can sing as a response to what God has done. Not only can we sing, but we can shout you can shout to the Lord, like it's okay. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been, imagine that you're at a Thunder game in the playoffs and they, they're winning. And it's like this back and forth crazy game. And what is the stadium doing? Are they all sitting there? Their hands in their laps? They're on their feet and they are screaming. Have you ever been at a football game with 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people singing a fight song, yelling a chant? I mean, I'm a Red Raider. We say Raider power. One half of the stadium yells Raider. The other half yells power. It's really, really cool. We're not talking. We're not like Raider. That's lame. Sitting there at a football stadium where one half is like power. How boring is that? You yell it as loud as you can. You shout. And that's not a dumb game. It's not a game that I paid money to go see incredibly skilled athletes do stuff I could never do. I have no, what I do has no connection to what they do. Like, they're awesome, I'm not, and I get to watch them play. I'm a spectator at a game, and I will shout. 
and we'll come to church on Sunday and just stand around? Oh, my word. Have anybody ever been to Haiti or to a church in Africa or to a church in Latin America or a church in the other side of town? Like, just about anything but, like, the white American church. They will shout to the Lord, and they have a lot to teach us about how to worship. I'm not telling you to fake it, by the way. I don't want you to come up here and just say, to, to produce jubilance. That would be silly. Like, that's the absolute wrong thing to do. I am saying... It's okay to shout. If you're in church and the Lord's moving in your heart, like, let it loose. It's okay. I give you full, not only give you permission, God commands you, sing with for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. We have brothers and sisters who know how to do this really, really well. And we have a lot to learn from them. So, remember that I said, what does that teach us about God? That we have a celebratory God. Remember, we're looking at, uh, with our kids yesterday in Luke 15. Jesus is sitting there, and the scribes and the Pharisees are like, man, this guy, tax collectors and sinners, he's got them having a meal with them? It's ridiculous. How, why, could, why is he around these kinds of people? And so Jesus tells them three parables, the parable of the lost coin, or excuse me, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in all of those parables, something is lost, something is wanted and is searched for. And when the, the shepherd finds it, when the woman finds it, and when the father finds the son, they have a giant party. They have a party. There's more celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a righteous person who needs no repentance. There's, there is celebration in heaven. Do you understand? God is the God who celebrates, and we should be a people who celebrate. Why? He redeemed us. Do you see what he did? He saved them out of slavery. He rescued us. He answered us. And he does the same today. He is a God who rescues the lost. And if you've never been rescued by him, if you're sitting here listening to my voice and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, I'm telling you that God rescues you from your sin. There is a part of you, if you have not accepted the gospel, that knows that there is a holy God who loves you. Because if you don't know that, I'm telling you, there is a holy God who loves you. And sin separates us from him. And everything in you, because he's put eternity in our hearts, strives and longs for this greatness that we uh, were made for but are broken away from. That calling is the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus, who is the author of our faith. He was the only one who can redeem us. He came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. And if you believe in that and trust in him, you will be saved. And you enter into the group that the Bible calls the redeemed. We've been purchased out of slavery. There's all these different metaphors. We've been uh, declared righteous in a court of law. But most importantly, we've been found by our Father. We have come home and he is celebrating our arrival. That is the prodigal son, this final picture that Jesus gives us. And there is celebration in heaven for you. Every time someone gets saved, we got to throw a massive party. A big one. Like, blow it out. Boom. Who cares? Have a cake. Have the thing. Do whatever you do. Sing the things. Do the stuff. Have a party. We should celebrate. We should sing. And we should be a people of great joy who sing and shout and celebrate what God has done. Amen. Amen. There we go. There we go. Woo! There we go. I mean it. I'm about to have everybody stand up and shout, kind of like what you in class. You're like, bonsai or whatever, but maybe not bonsai. Hallelujah is probably a better one. 
That was in a movie, right? Yeah, anyway. Have them do that in a class. It'll work. Um, shout for joy, and I mean it. Uh, at some point this week, I want to just challenge you. I want you to do something that will make yourself uncomfortable. Find a time and shout. Go with your family and shout. Hey, kids, like, hold me accountable at lunch today. Let's stand up and shout. Let's just shout hallelujah. Daughter's looking at me like, oh, my gosh, that's crazy. It's okay. Be crazy. Like, we could use a little crazy in our world. We, in a good way, a good kind of crazy. Uh, we could use some people who are so just blasted out of their minds, excited about their redemption, that they sing and they shout all the time. In a good way, not shouting at people, not like yelling, but shouting like, God is great. He's amazing. He saved me. He redeemed me. Don't you know that he loves you? Like, get excited. Somebody, please, get excited that the Lord loves you. It's Christmas time. You can talk about Jesus and no one can get mad at you. So do it. When you're buying your stuff, be like, hey, you know I'm buying this? Because Jesus loves you. I said this a hundred times to you. So you check out at the store. Tell the person that Jesus loves them. Just try it. Be crazy. Maybe don't shout at the girl at Walgreens, but maybe walk outside and shout. I mean, don't be crazy. But be crazy. All right. Be people of great joy. Second, be people of surrender. Um, the Christian life is a life of surrender. It is surrender to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. We are under his authority. We surrender to him. We surrender to the authority of the word. And we surrender to the work of the Spirit in our life. He says, but my people would not listen. Israel would not submit if they would listen to me and if they would follow my ways, I would fight their battles for them and I would feed them with the finest weed. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Do you want victory over sin in your life? Then surrender to Jesus. He will not give victory if you will not surrender to him. Why? Because he is the way of victory and he does not follow you. Do you understand? You cannot follow Jesus if you're arguing with him about the way that he is going. Do you know how ridiculous that is to argue with Jesus? Read the Bible. Read Revelation. He's not messing around. He's coming back on a white horse and a sword is coming out of his mouth. He has a name written on his thigh that only he knows. He's awesome. He is magnificent. He is holy. He is righteous. He is powerful. He is king and he is Lord. And our only response to him is to submit to him and to listen to him, to surrender to him, and to follow him. That is it. There is no other option. Anything else is just insanity. That you would go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I got an idea. I think we should go this way. What? No. All you should do is walk up to Jesus and sing and shout and surrender and worship and follow. That's it. And we have this concept that Jesus is like, my buddy? I don't even have words for it. Yes, he is your friend. Yes, he is your brother. Yes, he is your king. Yes, he is your savior. Yes, he is tender with you and he brings you close to his heart and he is close to the brokenhearted. But he is God and we are to have no other gods before him. And we're supposed to worship him. There are things, Jake talked about some of them last week during our prayer time and he got to preaching. And we have things going on in our church and in our own uh, lives and in our family's lives. We need victory over things. We need marriages that need to be redeemed and restored and resurrected that are dead that Jesus needs to bring life to. We have sin that is indwelling in us. We have people who are overwhelmed with lust, with greed, with arrogance, with pride. 
We need Jesus to come in and resurrect all those broken and dead lives. But he will not do it if you won't surrender. If you do not listen to him, submit to his ways. When he says in uh, Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all her weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Does he then say, come to me and argue with me and tell me what to do? Take my yoke upon you. You yoke to Jesus like a pair of oxen, and then he pulls the load. But you are yoked to him. He is yoked to no one. And yet, in his incredible, beautiful humility and his grace and his kindness, he comes alongside us and says, I will teach you how to walk by faith. Now work with me. Walk with me. And I will give you rest for your souls. He gives no soul rest that will not submit to him. So be a people of great surrender who listen and submit and follow. And finally, I want us to be a people of bold expectation. Um, I try to find one word because this, because we had like joy, surrender, but I couldn't find it. So I thought bold expectation and then great expectation. Then it was like Dickinsonian. I thought I was stealing it. So bold, bold expectation. What does he say? Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. In the context of this and with the, the festival of tabernacles or booths uh, or the feast of booths, and I started thinking about, okay, how has God provided like food for people? And it, and it led me to uh, John chapter 6 where Jesus is sitting there and, and earlier in the chapter he feeds these people loaves and fishes and all these people are following him around and they say, oh, you know, our, our fathers ate manna in the desert. So give us a sign. You know, Jesus is like, you're only following me because I gave you loaves and fishes. That's the only reason you're doing this. And they say, well, our fathers gave us a sign. So our, you gave our fathers a sign by giving them manna. So give us this bread so we don't have to do anything. So we can pick up the food like they did every day and not have to work. Jesus said, this is the work of the Father, to believe the Son whom he sent. This is it. And then at the end of that, he starts saying crazy things at the end of that chapter. And he's like, and they say, we don't understand. And he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus goes from giving manna in the desert to making loaves and fishes. And do you remember when they took the manna, there was just enough for that day. You get the manna in the morning, you eat it. Get the manna in the evening, you eat it. If you store it up, it rots. What happened with the loaves and fishes? Basketfuls of leftovers. Remember that? Each disciple had a full basket of leftovers. And the next time he did it, they had a basket of leftovers. What is Jesus teaching them? I provide over abundantly beyond what you will need. You needed, I told you to get lunch for all these people. I not only fed all these people, they went back with leftovers. You now have leftovers. I provide in abundance. And then he did it again. And then he comes to them and he says, remember, I am the bread of life. He then gives us his very self. He provides himself to us. When this says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it, you think, okay, I'm hungry. Give me a little bit of food. Jesus says, not only will I give you food, I will give you me. I am your provision. You're worried about what you're going to eat? The living God indwells you. Why are you worried about these things? That's why he tells the disciples, I have bread that you don't even understand. Jesus didn't even need to eat. We are to live in bold expectation with a mouth wide open for the Lord. Listen to this. There's a guy named George Mueller who wrote a book called The Autobiography of George Mueller. He was a British 
a minister who opened up a children's home. And if you've never read the book, The Autobiography of George Mueller, Mueller please get it and read it, because it it's incredible. He lived his life with this idea that God would provide everything. And so this, him and these orphans would sit down at this home, and they would not have any food, and they would pray, Lord, provide the food, and someone would knock on the door and bring bread. I mean, that's what the book is about. So he writes, uh, not in that book, but in, in uh, talking about Psalm 81 here. He says, Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. It is if God has said, Now ask much at my hands, look, much, look for much from me, and bring great requests before me. I am God and not a man. It is the very joy and delight of my heart to give abundantly. It is the very joy and delight of the heart of God to do us good. Do you believe that? It is the very delight and the very joy of the heart of God to do us good. And we are here taught that God is willing to give us everything that is really good for us. Bring great requests before a great God. What is your deepest need? Do you need more money? Ask the Lord to help you. Do you need a marriage to be healed? Do you need a family member to be reconciled in that relationship? Do you need freedom from an indwelling sin that has had you pinned down to the ground for decades? Do you need freedom from addiction? Do you need freedom from from uh, improper thinking that's got you all wrapped around the axis? Do you need freedom from the world just shoving you along in its current? What do you need the Lord to rescue you from? What is your greatest need? Ask the Lord for it. Open your mouth wide and he will fill it. Why? Because he is the Lord our God who redeemed us and brought us out of Egypt. So, as you go throughout this week and you get back to work and get back to school and life after Thanksgiving, remember who your God is. Get in the Word, read it, talk to people, sing, shout. We're getting ready. Every week we create this service, and the last song is called a response song. We put it in there because we want to respond to what God has taught us in the Word. So as we come up to finish our worship time by singing a response to Him, sing. If the Lord leads you, shout. Sing loud. But don't leave this place until you have taken your greatest need and ask the Lord to provide the way out for it. Listen to Him, submit to Him, and then follow His ways. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you for being God. We are not God, and we are in desperate need of you to redeem and restore us. <clears throat> thank you for all that you have done for us, for the, the cross that you have provided for us the way of redemption. And not just redemption, but eternal life. And not just eternal life in eternity, but abundant life right now. An abundant life is a life that is surrendered to you, that is submitted to you that follows your ways. So Lord Jesus, as we respond in worship to you, the things that you're laying on our hearts to ask of you, these great requests of a great God, we bring them to you, Jesus. We offer them up to you as a fragrant sacrifice. Help us to surrender them to you and help us to come to you with mouths wide open, 
expecting great things from a great God. In Christ's risen name we pray. Amen. So you guys stand for this final song. Um, man, as Brandon was preaching about redemption and rescue, all these things, um, we, I had to call an audible. Sorry, Harris. I'm calling an audible. I don't ever do this. Huh. Ever. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. <laughs> I plan the set, and I do the set the way that I planned it because I believe the Holy Spirit can speak to me during the week just like he can in this service, and he can and does. But, man, I just couldn't get around the fact that we, we, we really need to um, do the song again that we did to open the service. And not the song we did after um, we did announcements, but the one we did at 1035. Now, I know some of you weren't here for that. <laughs> Pause for effect. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. And it's a brand new song. That's also okay. Move with the music. Let it speak to you. Celebrate what the Lord has done for us in this place, okay? what he's done and what he does you lift me up each time I call you paid the ransom once for
Amen. All right, so go and sing and shout for joy to the Lord and go in peace. Amen.